ask the Lord's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, and by your Holy Spirit, you have a word for us today through it. And so again, we ask that you would explain it, open our, our minds, open our hearts, and most importantly, Lord, give us the willingness to act upon your word, that we would, that we would seek to live it out, Lord, in our lives, in every single action, in our thoughts, and even as we leave today. So bless this word, I pray. Speak through me, your servant. May the words be yours in Jesus' name. Amen. Now today we come to part seven of our series in Romans, entitled Abraham Against All Hope. Now as we've been working our way through the first three chapters of Romans, we have seen three major false beliefs that Paul has been battling against with the truth of the gospel. And I'd summarize those three major false beliefs this way. The first is, salvation can be earned by being a good moral person. Salvation can be earned. So, you know, keeping a scorecard of doing more good than bad, that somehow I can be a good enough person. The second major belief that he confronts is that salvation comes as a Jewish birthright, whereby simply following the covenant of circumcision ensures salvation. And so he confronts this. So to us, that means forget the notion of being, you know, born a Mennonite or forget the notion of that your parents are good Christian people, so therefore you are too. That's not how it works. The third belief that Paul addressed is salvation comes through practicing religious rituals or by following the law of Moses. And so forget the notion that, you know, things like church attendance or or even prayers, or reading your Bible, or taking communion, that these things can save us. Religious rituals is not what it's about. And so, against all three of those false beliefs that were festering within that early church in Rome, Paul, like a skilled surgeon, he begins cleanly cutting away those cancerous tumors of false belief that were plaguing them. And now he's beginning to skillfully Replace those with fresh living tissue of the pure gospel, the good news, which as we summarized last week, is that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Further, this salvation is available not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, which is obviously all of us, I believe, which is very, very good news, isn't it? This wasn't just for the Jews, this was also for the world everyone else and that is big news for us and so now I'm going to have a quick pop quiz here to get everyone engaged get those wheels churning who remembers the four big words from last Sunday's sermon I I threw this out at prayer meeting on Wednesday and they I think did about 75 percent I think was the score I would have I would have given them uh does anyone here know what big word number one was from last week's sermon anyone remember I'll allow you to go back in your notes if you have them handy. Who's got? Justification, Justification, right? Now do you want to give the definition? We are justified by grace through the gift of God. Yep, that's right. Very good. See, leave it to Rocky, the teacher. He's got it, right? Good job. And, And the shorthand way of remembering it is justification, just as if I never sinned, that we will now be faultless to stand before God's throne because we are justified. Okay, big word number two. This is the easy one. 
I heard someone whisper it. Say it louder. There it is. Redemption. We are redeemed. We are ransomed. Right? We were held, we were held hostage, captive. But we have now been redeemed. Jesus took our place. All right. The third one. This is the really big one. Big word number three. Propitiation. And what does that one mean? This one's a little bit longer. Yeah, that's right. So the PR, the priest, that's how I uh, remember it. The priest would take the, the lamb, the blood of the goat, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, and thereby making propitiation on our behalf that the, the, the goat died, his blood was spilled so that ours didn't have to be. And so it is with Christ. He is our propitiation. His blood was shed so that we didn't need to die. He took God's wrath upon himself. And now the fourth one uh, is a hyphenated term. What was the big word number four? Who's got that? Forbearance, Forbearance, right? So God in divine forbearance. Forbearance meaning that he could have and by every right should have killed Adam and Eve, destroyed them right then and there when they sinned, but in his divine forbearance, he, he chose to not give them what they deserved right then and there. He was patient. Out of his love, he gave them mercy. And so he passed over sin. And so it is that in divine forbearance, he continued to pass over sin until Christ could pay that sin debt in full. And so in forbearance, this is his mercy, that he does not strike us down the moment we sin. He gives us an opportunity to have that paid for, and he provided that sacrifice through Christ. So divine forbearance. So I'd say, you guys, I'll give you 100%, A+. plus. Good job. We've got the four big words down, and hopefully you can remember them moving forwards. And so now this week, we come to Romans chapter 4, and verses 1 to 17, the initial section. Essentially, Paul is reinforcing what we've just rehearsed here. What we just remembered, he's reinforcing all of these points and solidifying his teaching by pointing now to the example of Abraham, the father of faith. Now, one of my absolute favorite songs as a child growing up was, of course, Father Abraham. Who here remembers that song? Father Abraham. Okay, most of you remember it. I debated about singing it for you, but I thought I'd skip you guys all the misery. And it's being recorded, so I don't want anyone going back to watch that, but... You know the song, Father Abraham. Yeah, okay. And so by the end, the reason I loved it is because, you know, you get the actions going. So it's right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot, nod your head, turn around. And there was some more. If you kept going, it was stick out your tongue, I think, was ones we we ad-libbed. And I forget what else we all did. But by the end, the kids are just flopping around every which way. And then finally, everyone falls to the ground exhausted. Right? So you can see why this is a childhood favorite. Well, Father Abraham has many sons. We loved it because of the actions. But the words of the song, the meaning of the song, is based on this passage. It's based on exactly what it says in in verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 4. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. Here's the key line. He is the father of us all. The father of us all. And not just the Jews. Verse 17. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. 
He is our Father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. So here again we see Abraham, the word says, is the father of us all, not biologically, not according to the law, but by faith, by faith. Because as verse 3 tells us, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So there it is, Abraham believed God. And this is why he is called the father of faith and all who, like him, follow in the same path that we simply believe God and is credited as righteousness. That's it. Abraham believed God. No works at all, just faith. And to those Jews who then, after over a thousand years of observing the law, they would immediately argue back and say something like, but, but what about the covenant of circumcision? Isn't that a work? Isn't that an action that we must do? And to that, Paul responds in the middle of verse 9 and into verse 10. We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? Then Paul provides the answer. It was not after, but before. And so the point that he's making here is that if you're gonna if you're gonna hang your hat, so to speak, on the action, he's saying, well, if it was the action, was the, the righteousness credited to him before the action or after the action? And he makes the point, a very important point, that it was before. The action was not what, what was making Abraham righteous in God's sight. In fact, a careful reading of the story of Abraham in Genesis reveals that God established the covenant of circumcision with Abraham some 14 years after God had already declared him righteous by faith alone. 14 years. So for 14 years, God declared Abraham righteous without any other action, any other covenant. The the circumcision came later, and Paul explains what that was about. Verse 11. And he received circumcision as a sign a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So here we see that the outward action was only a sign, a seal of what had already taken place within Abraham's heart through faith. It's just an outward sign. And this connects us back to Romans 2.29, where Paul talked about the circumcision of the heart, talking about the inward action. The inward belief, the faith that cannot be seen outwardly, but it's in the heart. And it's very similar to our practice today of water baptism. You know, when we have someone come up here and and they're baptized and and they go under the water, it's not that action itself that declares them righteous. It's not that action of being plunged in that saves them. Baptism, as we declare many times over, is simply the outward sign of the inward reality of what Christ has already done in our hearts through faith. Right? So so baptism must follow. It doesn't precede. It follows. And the same way, circumcision follows. It didn't precede. And so now to put a sort of a ribbon, a bow tie on this entire section... Just in case from last Sunday and and now this Sunday recapping it, just in case somehow you've missed it, let me just say it one more time. The good news of the gospel is that salvation is available to all people, 
not by personal merit, not by birthright, not by works of the law. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so now we come to Romans 4, verse 18. We're continuing with the theme of Abraham, but it switches gears just a little bit. Verse 18. If you have your Bibles and you haven't opened them yet, please do. We're going to be looking at these verses a little bit more closely. Romans 4, verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. I want you to reread that first line. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Isn't that just an incredible statement? Just, just think about that. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Against all hope. G.K. Chesterton once wrote this about hope. Hope means hoping when things are hopeless. There's a mouthful. Hope means hoping when things are hopeless. He continues, or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. Now let me ask you, have you ever been in a situation that seemed against all hope. A time where sickness stole your health. A day where death robbed you of a loved one. A season of life, no no matter what you did or didn't do, it just seemed that absolutely everything was going wrong and just kept going wrong. A time where it seemed like nothing would ever go right again. Have you ever had a time like that? Have you ever felt like that? Maybe some of you are there right now. I honestly think that collectively, this year of 2020 has felt a lot like that for most of us. It's one of those years where we keep, you know, looking for that light at the end of the tunnel, and just when we see a glimmer, it turns out that light is a freight train, right, bearing down on us. It's just one of those years. It just keeps coming, one thing after another, and we begin to wonder, you know, normal life as we once knew it, is it, is it going to return anytime soon, if ever? And we begin to wonder, and we begin to feel hopeless. And it's at precisely times such as these where discouragement and despair are lurking all around us. And, and it's looking for a way to penetrate, to penetrate our minds, and to sink deeper from our minds and to take up residence in our hearts, telling us that all hope is lost, And that, you know what, you may as well just give up and give in to despair and darkness. And the fact is that Satan knows that if he can sap someone's hope and replace it with despair, then they are much easier to deceive, defeat, and ultimately destroy, which is his goal. He wants to destroy every last one of us. I once read about a series of experiments that pointed to this powerful thing of hope and the difference it makes in life and death. This experiment was conducted in the 1950s by a John, Johns Hopkins professor named Kurt Richter. Now, I will say at the outset, it's a rather cruel experiment. For in this experiment, he would put rats in half-filled jars of water, 
And then he would observe them to see how long they would swim before finally giving up and drowning. And so the first rat, Richter noted, swam around in that jar for about two minutes and drowned. Two more of the 12 domesticated rats that he then put in died in pretty much the same way. But interestingly, the nine remaining rats did not succumb nearly so readily, and they would keep swimming for, for minutes and hours, and some of them even swam for days before finally giving up and drowning. So collecting his data, Richter conducted another experiment, and this time he did it with wild rats. And these, these wild rats were, were kind of known as wharf rats, and they were renowned for their swimming abilities. And so he, right, right out of the gate, assumed that these rats would swim for much, much longer than the domesticated rats. They had just been trapped. They were fierce and aggressive. And so one by one, he dropped these wharf rats into the water. And one by one, he was utterly surprised. For within mere minutes of entering the water, every last one of them, all 12, drowned. What killed these rats, he wondered. Why do all of the fierce, aggressive, wild wharf rats die promptly upon immersion and only a small number of the similarly treated, tamed, domesticated rats lasted much longer? And he soon realized that the answer was, in a word, hope. Hope. You see, the wild rats clearly understood that there was no way they could get out of this jar. They understood that they were in a situation over which they had no control and against which they had no defense. They would dive down to the bottom of the jar, look around, see there was no way of escape, swim back up to the surface and say, I can't get out. It's game over. And so they could have swam for days. They just gave up because they couldn't rescue themselves. And so, realizing this, Richter tweaked his experiment. And he took another group of wild rats and he placed them again in the jar. But right before they were expected to drown, he then reached into the jar and plucked them up out of the water, holding them up in the air for a little while. He would then place them back in the jar and repeat the process. And in this way, he wrote, the rats quickly learned that the situation which seemed initially utterly hopeless was not hopeless. And in those short rescues, it changed their attitude and perspective entirely. In fact, the rats that experienced even one brief reprieve from being plucked out of the water, he said, would often keep swimming for days and days and days afterwards. In Professor Richter's final analysis, he wrote this. After the elimination of hopelessness, the rats simply refused to die. The elimination of hopelessness. Now, of course, rats are not people. But in one key way, I believe we are the same. We all need a reason to keep swimming, don't we? We all need a reason to keep swimming. In short, we all need the same thing, hope. We all need hope. Let's read verse 17 one more time. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. So two questions arise from this statement. Number one, what exactly made Abraham's situation so hopeless? And number two, what is it that Abraham in hope believed? Well, verses 19 to 21, Paul tells us. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. 
Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Now, most of you will likely recall the famous story of of Abraham and Sarah as recorded in the book of Genesis. It begins in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, with God speaking to Abram, as he was then known. And he gives Abram this incredible promise. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Now, Abraham was already 75 years old, or thereabouts, when God gave him this initial promise. And the only problem was that at this point, already at age 75, and his wife Sarah, 10 years his junior, at age 65, they had no children of their own. So he's already an old man by the time God comes along and promises him, hey, I'm going to make you a great nation. Okay, that sounds good, but uh, one problem, God, we're barren. We cannot have children. But against all hope, Abraham says, you know what, God? I believe I believe you. I believe you are capable of this. I believe your promise. Sign me up. And so he did. And next, God tells Abraham to leave all he knows, leave his home, his family, his friends, and go to a place that he would show him, a place that Abram knew absolutely nothing about. But again, Abram says, I believe you. I'm going. And so he saddles up and away they go. Now, on his way up to this land of of Canaan, you know, he didn't know the way. He'd never been there before. He didn't have Google Maps to help him, you know, make the right turns at the oasis and whatever. He's just, God is showing him the way. And so, God said, go, Abraham goes. And here we see that despite Abraham's faith, there is still a problem. Because after 10 years since the initial promise, they've passed by. Abraham was was 75, but now he's 85. 10 years have passed, an entire decade. And they still have no children. The promise has still gone unfulfilled. And now doubt is beginning to creep its way into Sarah's mind. And Genesis 16 verse 1 tells us, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. And so here we see that Sarah decided that she needed to just help God out a little bit. You know, he's made this big promise I'm I'm an old lady. I've been barren even in my youth. I couldn't conceive. So, you know what? I think we just got to help God out. And so she comes up with a plan where using the cultural norms of their society at that time, she offers to Abraham, her maidservant Haggai, to bear a child on her behalf that would legally be considered her own. This was allowed in that time. It was understood. And so, out of this, Ishmael was born. But the question has to be asked, did God need Sarah's help to keep his promise? Did he need her assistance? Of course not. And in the 15 years that followed, as Ishmael grows up, God made clear to them that though he would still make Ishmael into a nation, he was not the son of the promise. He was not the son of the covenant. And by now, Abraham is 100 years old, a century He has lived. And he knows, as Paul says, that his body is as good as dead. And he also knew that Sarah's 90-year-old womb was dead. It had never conceived, and humanly speaking, it never would. 
But rather than give in to doubt and despair, rather than, you know, give up and stop swimming, against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed God's promise. And he kept believing over 25 years from when it was initially given. 25 years, an old man, you're going to have a son. Now he's 100 and he still believes. Verse 20. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. The Greek verb for the word waver that is used here is diakrino. Diakrino meaning to hesitate, to waver, or to doubt. And in this context, the person who hesitates, wavers, or doubts is making a decision or rendering a mental verdict based upon the evidence that is presented to them. You know, we we all do this almost every single day. We're presented with evidence, and so based upon what we see, we interpret that evidence, and we come to a decision, and we render a verdict. But even at the ripe old age of 100, a century old, Paul states that even though every last piece of physical evidence presented to Abraham stated emphatically, empirically, that he and Sarah could never, ever have a child of their own, Abraham still did not waver, hesitate, or doubt. He did not render a mental verdict against God's promise, even though all of the evidence was to the contrary. Quite simply, Abraham took God at his word. That's it. He took God at his word. And because of that, he decided that no matter how long it took, he would keep taking God at his word. His faith did not waver. He was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised, a century old or not. And so, fully persuaded, he did not waver. So, the question, what about you? What about me? What about us? Are you fully persuaded? That's a a loaded question. Are you fully persuaded? When things seem dark, when times seem to just be getting worse, when it seems like things are taking way too long and there's no end in sight and doubt and despair are lurking everywhere and in the shadows of our hearts and our minds, Do you ever think like Sarah that maybe, you know, maybe we have to do something to help God out? Or do we like Abraham, in hope, without wavering, keep believing in God that he is able and has the power to keep his word to us? An author by the name of Hal Lindsay once wrote, Man can live about 40 days without food, about three days without water, and about eight minutes without air, but only about a second without hope. The best answer to despair is not platitudes, vague spirituality, or even science. It is hope, real hope with real answers. And that's what we have in the person of Jesus. Real answers, real hope. So let me ask you, when when your problems seem to be against all hope, just as they were for Abraham. When you've been maybe swimming for a very, very long time, 
just trying to keep your head above the water, just trying to keep from drowning, and you just can't see a way out. In what or whom do you place your hope? The fact is that we've we've acknowledged this already this morning, but the fact remains that as I look around at this scared and shaking world, I see so many, many people placing their hope in the wrong places. They hope in science, in doctors or medicine. They hope in politicians, political parties, or our legal system. And many, many more place their hope in other people, or many more even just in themselves. They place their hope in their own abilities to endure and to somehow solve and overcome their own problems. They, they hope to essentially become their own savior. But take note from this scripture once more that Abraham did not place his hope in any of those types of things or people to solve his problems. No, against all hope, Abraham placed his hope solely in God and in faith believed his promise. As the psalmist wrote in Psalm 43, verse 5, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. See, my friends, the same path that was available to Abraham is available to us. Verses 23 and 24, this is where Paul drives it home. The words it was credited to him as righteousness were not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will also credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. This isn't just the path for Abraham. This is the path for us. And it's credited to us as righteousness through faith in what God has done and faith in Christ. What an incredible promise. God's righteousness is credited to us by faith. What a promise and what a living hope. The 19th century painter G.F. Watt His most famous painting is entitled simply, Hope. And in the painting, he pictures hope as a blindfolded woman, alone against the world. And her eyes are bandaged up so that she can't see ahead. In her hands is a harp. But the harp has every single string on it broken, except for one. Only one string remains. The broken strings all dangling there represent all of her shattered expectations, her bitter disappointments, and all of her life's sorrows. But that last unbroken string represents hope. And so there she is, striking that string repeatedly. And a glorious melody floats out over the world and fills the dark sky with stars. The artist painted a very profound truth. Even when all else is gone, hope remains. Hope. And so, my friends, let me encourage each one of you today, keep plucking that string of hope. Not a hope in anything that this world has to offer. Not a hope in yourself, but a hope in God. Our living hope, the one string that will never be broken. God is able to keep his promise. He will keep his word to us just as he kept it to Abraham. So my friends, place your hope in God, the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. He alone is our Savior and our refuge. He alone never breaks his word. He alone keeps his promises. He alone will never, ever fail us. So let's choose today to be like Abraham and that against all hope, in hope, place our faith in God and in him alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our living hope. This world has a parade of things that it wants to line up for us to say, hey, put your hope in this, put your hope in that. This will fix you, this will save you, this will solve our problems. And every last one of them fails. Everyone. You alone never fail. You alone are our living hope. And that, Lord, as long as we cling to hope in you, that like Abraham, you will come through just as you have promised. And so, Lord, we thank you that we have this hope as a sure thing in our hearts, Lord, through faith. And that through this faith, you credit it to us as righteousness, not because of what we have done, but because of what you have done through Christ. And that, Lord, today we leave here not as people who are beaten down, discouraged, filled with despair, but as people who leave with a living hope that we are redeemed, we are justified, propitiation has been made in our behalves, and in mercy and divine forbearance you have passed over our sins, not treating us as we deserve, but instead giving us mercy because of Jesus Christ and your sacrifice on our behalf. And so, Lord, I pray that this hope would fill us from head to toe, Lord, that it would overcome the shadows of doubt and despair that creep in, and that, Lord, we could leave here today reinvigorated, refilled, re-inspired to live this hope out in our lives, to speak this hope out in our words, and that, Lord, through this, others could say, where is this hope coming from? And that as your word tells us, we would be prepared to give an answer, to, to respond to anyone, what is this hope that we have? Because our hope is in you. And so, Lord, in these days where so many people in the world around us, people we know are looking for hope, help us to be ready to point to you and help it to shine out in our lives that our hope is sure in you. This isn't a pie-in-the-sky hope, Lord. It is a sure thing because you are able to keep your word. You've never once broken it, and you never once will. And so, Father, we thank you for this, and we go out in this hope on your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.